the new head of the CDU. Uh, her name is Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. Great work, man. And um, even Germans have a hard time pronouncing that name. Hello and welcome to The Political Foosball, the English language podcast about the German political playing field. My name's Adam Ludwig and I am a political junkie, an American political junkie living in Berlin. My name is Georg Farion. I'm a journalist working for the Berlin-based economic monthly magazine, Kapital. Today we're going to be talking about a workshop held by the CDU, which is one of the main German political parties, uh, to analyze and reconcile the events around the refugee crisis, which began in late summer and fall of 2015. But first... Since this is our very first edition of the Political Foosball, we want to talk a little bit about what we're doing and why. For the next 45 or so minutes, we're going to kick around the foosball of German politics. Um, and Georg, what's in it for you? I think it will be fun. I mean, our, we're friends and our friendship consists in going to a lot of political events together. We visit a lot of panel discussions together. We talk politics a lot, and uh, I think it would be fun to try it in this format. For me, one of the reasons I'm doing this is that I have found, as an antidote to uh, my addiction to politics in the U.S., which started to feel a lot more like I was packing on empty calories and not getting a lot of nutrition, <laughs> I have become very interested in, German, in the German political system, which is... Uh, complex. It's very different from the American political system. There's a lot of interesting players, and although there, uh, the German political system has its share of intrigue and dishonesty, um, there, there is something wholesome uh, and productive and nerdy about the process and the discourse around German politics, which um, I find is, like I said, a nice antidote to what I experienced in the U.S., especially starting uh, in early 2016. I also feel that uh, we're offering something for recent immigrants to Germany who haven't yet mastered the German language because, in my experience, there isn't a lot of great English language in-depth analysis mm. of German politics. Yeah, and especially here in Berlin, there are so many immigrants, expats, immigrants, whatever you want to call them, a lot of them very political minds who are interested in public debate and also feel that they're not really part of the national conversation. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to include more of that community uh, into the discourse as well. Absolutely. So without further ado, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, these workshops. Occasionally, because I'm fascinated by the German language and, and still, of course, Learning it, I might ask Georg to pronounce a word or two um, to give a little background color. So, how do you say, how, what is the name in German for these uh, refugee crisis uh, workshop conversations? Werkstattgespräche. Okay. So, the new head of the CDU, or CDU, as we pronounce it in English. Now, I'm asking you to pronounce her name in German. The new head of the CDU, CDU, it's hard because I'm toggling back and forth between German and English, but the new head of the CDU, uh, her name is Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. 
great workman. And um, even Germans have a hard time pronouncing that name. And Germans often come up with uh, colorful names for their politicians, a little bit like we do with uh, sports figures and celebrities in the U.S. And so, of course, the Germans have decided to call her AKK, or in English, AKK. So the new head of the CDU, AKK, has called these uh, workshops um, as a way to reconcile with the recent history of the refugee crisis, which has caused a lot of uh, political and social ripple, ripples throughout uh, German society and the political landscape. So before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about what the CDU is within the spectrum of German political parties. Well, at the moment and for most of the history of the Federal Republic, so that means post-war uh, Germany, post-World War II, post-World War II uh, Germany, uh, the CDU has been the dominant political party. It has uh, had some very important chances, like the first post-war uh, Chancellor Konrad Adenauer, who integrated Germany uh, in the West and in the NATO, um, and was one of the founders of what later developed into the European Unions, um, and Helmut Kohl, who oversaw uh, reunification in 1990. Of course, Angela Merkel is also a member of that party. She's been governing Germany for almost 14 years now. She's been elected for a fourth term in 2017, and she'll be there for another two years and a half, and then she won't seek re-election. But of course, she's also like a t the towering figure of German politics at the moment, has been for at least the last decade and a half. And as, this, as we do more uh, episodes of the podcast, we'll get into more detail about um, the different parties and, and how they work. The CDU, I would say, in, in, in very broad strokes, is roughly equivalent to the Republican Party in the U.S. because it's the more conservative party. But, of course, on social issues, there's quite a difference. There's one detail about the CDU that I think is important to mention, which is that it's allied with another party. How does that work, Georg? Well, first, I would say, yes, you're right. It's roughly comparable to the Republican Party, but that is pre-Trump. Yeah, I would say the CDU is not Trumpist. They're the most conservative party, but they're not populist. I, I would give them that. Uh, as to your questions, they're, they're aligned with another party, a local party of the same political color, I would say. And uh, they're also traditional, conservative, uh, right-leaning center-right, um, called the CSU, the Christian Social Union, who only run in Bavaria. And the CDU never runs in Bavaria, but the CSU never runs in any of the other states of Germany. But when it comes to elections at the federal level, they always form an, an alliance. Okay, so in, in very broad terms, it's as if... In the state of the great state of Texas, there was a party called the Lone Star Party, and the Republican Party never ran candidates in te Texas, but the Lone Star Party ran candidates. But in, in the national elections, the Lone Star Party always formed an alliance with the Republican Party, and their delegates counted towards the delegates of the Republican Lone Star Coalition. You mentioned the political color of these two parties, and I just want to point something out because this is a way that we're going to be referring to the spectrum of parties in, in the Germany, in the German multi-party system. And the color associated with uh, CDU, CSU is black. Black. So um, let's go back to the fall of 2015. What were the, the, um, the issues at hand? 
And what were the decisions that were made at that time? Very roughly, um, there had been large flows of um, large migration flows into the European Union for a number of years. Of course, that was because of the war in Syria and because of the upheaval in North Africa, Libya, Egypt, uh, to points in case. Um, and in the late summer of 2015, a large group, uh, I think it was about 15,000 15, people, were stranded in the central station of Hungary, a central European country that's bordering Austria, and were pushing towards the border, uh, pushing towards Austria, and then wanted to make uh, their way eventually into Germany. The situation, uh, the conditions in the central station in Hungary were very dire, not enough food, not enough uh, toilets. Um, and uh, eventually they set out on foot and just marched to the border because the Hungarian government would bust them. And, then and the Hungarian government wouldn't allow them to get on trains that then proceeded to Austria and Germany? Right. Okay. That's right. Because I think the idea was that they didn't want to uh, create a pull factor. Um, they wanted to make conditions for the refugees as miserable as possible so no more would follow. To discourage the, them. Yeah, to discourage uh, other migrants. Well, then in Berlin, the decision was made to let these people who were stranded in Hungary in for humanitarian reasons. Uh, and they then subsequently were, they were bused to the border, they were bused to the Austrian border, the Austrians then bused them to the German border, and they were received uh, with, um, uh, with quite a lot of enthusiasm initially in Germany, and uh, that set in motion a stream of events that then led to the immigration or the arrival of hundreds of thousands more uh, of people from war zones uh, in Germany. And uh, our political playing field has looked a little different since right. then. So there was a political process that led to this decision, but the decision to essentially open the borders and, for lack of a better term, invite all of these refugees into mm -hmm. Germany specifically, that decision essentially rests with Angela Merkel. And for, you know, you know in, in, just in terms of conversation, most people, simplifying things, say that Merkel made this decision on her own and the, the resulting impact has been pinned on Merkel. That's correct. I think there are people in government and in the CDU who would debate that interpretation, but uh, I think... Uh, from the eyes of the public, that would be, that's, the, that's how it is, yeah. So the immediate um, aftermath of this decision and this influx of refugees was what? Well, there's a German term, we call it Willkommenskultur. And that roughly translates to the culture of welcoming. So <clears throat> Germans were initially quite enthusiastic about people arriving uh, in, well, in Germany, um, I think for mostly two reasons, one being they felt um, pity for these people, they had compassion, they uh, wanted to help. So I think there was a genuinely, genuine um, belief that people were doing the right thing. And the other point is Germans were enthusiastic about being on the right side of history for once and were quite in love with their own goodness. So that created to the scenes that everybody saw the TV pictures from Munich Central Station where people were handing out candy and teddy bears to arriving refugees. 
uh, and clapping when the trains arrived. And even Angela Merkel got in on some of these feel-good scenes with her taking selfies, selfies. with, uh, with yeah, refugees. Yeah. And Merkel at that time and Germany became a symbol for this sort of humanitarian uh, outreach. Also in that time, I think she didn't have, um, if you look at the polls, she didn't have a lot of maneuvering space because it was so wildly popular to receive all these people. I think the approval ratings were in the, like, should we keep the borders open for refugees? They were like in the 60s, 70s, 80%. So how, what do you do as a chancellor? You can't really stem against that tidal wave of public opinion. So, um, but then obviously at a later point that public opinion turned. So as you point out, the sort of the good vibes faded and what is roughly the timeline of the shift in public opinion that started to go against Merkel and, and the refugee policy? Well, the first, when the first group from Hungary arrived, the first widely publicized event, that was in early September. And I think by November, probably, the initial commons culture gave way to something a Much lot more complex. A, yeah, and darker also. Because, especially in October and in November, I think that these were the two months when there were an influx of more than 200,000 uh, people in each of those months. And uh, people saw, like the German population saw, okay, apparently it's really hard to deal with such a large number of newcomers. It's difficult to register them. It's difficult to house them. Uh, a lot of towns said, okay, we cannot receive anybody because we don't know where to put them. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough rooms. Um, and... Uh, People just thought, okay, this is going to be complex and this is something we will have to keep dealing with for an extended period of time. And to give people who are listening a little bit of perspective on the scale of the immigration, uh, in 2015 and 2016 alone, correct me if I'm wrong, 1.1 million uh, people immigrated into Germany. Now, that's not just refugees. That's not only people who were applying for some kind of asylum as refugees, but uh, immigrants from a, a certain set of countries? Or is that 1.1 million figure all refugees? No, as far as, I'm, as far as I know, that's actually the number of refugees and asylum okay. seekers. Okay, we can, we can fact that, check that later, but just to give you, uh, you know, a, a sense of the scale, 1.1 million people come into Germany between 2015 and 2016 from these countries. If you compare it to the U.S., I mean, Germany has a population of about 18 million, a bit more. Uh, the U.S. has 300? I think so. So, yeah, like, around about, like, four times the size is, like, four million or four and a half million people coming to the U.S. within right. two years. Right. So it starts to have a huge impact, and... Um, there are grumblings, and those grumblings start to kind of reach ahead with a certain event that happened, I think, at the end of 2016 or 2015. The end of it's the turn of the year is 2015 to 16. It's New Year's Eve, and it's in Cologne. It's uh, by now a notorious event. Um, a large group of reportedly North African looking, Arabic speaking young men gathered at the central station. Lots of them were drunk, lots of them shot uh, fireworks as is customary in Germany for New Year's, but they shot them into the crowd and they assaulted, sexually assaulted and groped a large number of women and the German police was not present and um, basically it was like 
a law-free zone for a couple of hours, and that, that of course was a sh came as a shock to the German uh, to the German public, uh, and also there were, I think the press didn't react quite. It wasn't quite up to the task of reporting this event correctly in the first days. Maybe just a tiny bit of cultural context about New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve in Germany is a pretty big deal. People celebrate it, and a lot of people go out and celebrate in public spaces. And while there are a lot of fireworks that go off, and that's something that surprised me living in Berlin, is <laughs> you know you feel like you're in a war zone because there's so many firecrackers uh, going off. And by the way, the firecrackers here are a lot more powerful than they are in the U.S., <laughs> Um, but people are out in public spaces, and it's essentially a, a, a peaceful, joyous uh, celebration. And I, I would say, in general, people feel very safe in public spaces. I think in general, people feel safe in public spaces. I don't feel safe with all the fireworks uh, um, in Kreuzberg, which is a bit of a rowdy neighborhood, also a very cool place where both of us live. Um, I don't like to venture outside on New Year's, but in general, it's considered safe. Yeah. Right. So this was a, a large public, a peaceful public gathering, and then you have these um, these elements that disrupt it in a in a very aggressive way. Uh, and how is this treated in the press, and how do people kind of react to the way the political and social system responds to this uh, shocking event? Well, the press, I mean, obviously, um, I'm not 100% neutral on this one because I'm a journalist and these are my colleagues, but how it went down is this more or less. There was a police report and on, by the Cologne police um, that came out in the morning of January 1st saying, by and large, that the night had been peaceful. Um, there were some reports in... Uh, web forums and in the local press that that had not been the case, especially in the area around the uh, central train station, but the mainstream media like, needed a few days to actually pick up on it. And I think one of the major news shows uh, in the German public broadcasting system picked it up only on January 4th. Um, and by then... An online mob had formed saying, look, these, you know, like all these ugly words people say uh, when it comes to uh, immigration. And basically the impression in parts of the German public was that the German press didn't report on it properly because they want to keep it like under the rug. Right. And this is interesting to me as an American because it's uh, happening in parallel or is almost a precursor to... Uh, the fake news phenomenon um, that has arisen in, in, in the U.S. and in particular in association with the rise of Donald Trump. There is a term for this in German. Without going into the history of the term too much, um, it's called Lügenpresse, and it essentially means the lying press. So um, in Germany, there's a term that is roughly equivalent to fake news. Um, and this... Uh, this phenomenon is is grabbed onto by uh, an emerging political movement um, that is very much working against Willkommenskultur and um, the regime of Angela Merkel. So can you give us a little bit of background? On sure, that? sure. There are basically two catalysts, I think, of that stream of political thought and action. Uh, one being... Uh, 
a group that first emerged in the East German town of Dresden uh, called PEGIDA, which is an acronym for Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the West, an anti-immigration, anti-immigrant group, anti-Muslim group um, that also voiced a lot of local grievances, but basically is... I guess roughly comparable to your to the American alt right. Um, they gained a lot of traction after two, the events of 2015, and especially after uh, New Year's Eve in Cologne. And there's also a new political party called the Alternative for Germany (AfD) that started off as a party that was critical on the Euro crisis and the Greek bailout. Um, which they said was basically paid for with the German taxpayer money. That's a different story. It now morphed into something different, something darker, something anti-Islam, anti-immigration, uh, very right-wing, uh, um, and uh, in parts quite nasty. So um, just for the sake of our conversation, I'm going to anglicize AFD. We're going to call them the AFD. Fair enough. And to give you a little bit of context... Um, it's, it, it's hard to draw a parallel with the American political system and, the, and a party like the AFD because Germany, as we'll discuss in later podcasts, is a multi-party system. So you have a spectrum of parties. You have two main parties, or you used to, um, and then you have these smaller parties. But AFD is really a unique phenomenon in that within the span of a few short years, they go from a party that didn't exist to a party that's now getting close to about 20% of the popular vote nationally, um, maybe a little bit less, but in some states in Germany, they're getting up towards the 30s. Almost, yeah. Yeah. So At least in polls. I mean, I mean the, the national polls have gone down a little bit from mm -hmm. uh, their heights, but there are parts, uh, especially eastern German states, where they poll at 20, 25 Maybe more percent. They're an issue-based party because they, the, the, their main issue is the refugee crisis. So the, the nearest parallel that I could draw is to the Tea Party um, mm -hmm. that reacted to some of Obama's policies and emerged not as its own political party but as a strain within the Republican Party. So how did all the developments that happened between um, the decisions of the fall of 2015 and now uh, what kind of impact did they have on uh, the CDU, the CDU, and Merkel's chancellorship? Well, very roughly put, you've got, <clears throat> I mean, traditionally there was uh, the saying within the CDU, we cannot allow any political space right to the right of the CDU that's occupied by a democratic party. So basically they wanted to cover everything from the middle to the extreme right and incorporate also the right-wingers into their more mainstream brand of politics. But now you've got the AfD <clears throat> and they're winning state election after state election after state election. By winning, I mean they don't actually win the majorities, but they get like 10%, 50%, in some cases 20, more than 20, 22%, 25%, I think in um, Sachsen-Anhalt, the state of Sachsen-Anhalt, they scored something like this. Um, so, of course, this is a shock to the CDU because they've never seen a challenge to their political brand that was so successful in such a short time coming from the right. And also you have to understand that the chancellor, under the chancellorship of Merkel, um, 
the CDU as a whole shifted much more to the left, much more to the mainstream, so it left space on the right. But of course you've got a large part of the rank and file of the CDU who are still conservative and right-wingers, and they say like, look, you're taking us down the wrong road, and now we've got competition from the, from the right, and they're getting more and more and more successful. Uh, and after um, scoring bad in a number of state uh, elections and amidst growing criticism uh, from their own party, Merkel announced the decision that she's not going to seek re-election in 2021, when we're going to have the next federal election, and that she's also going to step down from the party chair of the CDU. Okay. Um, one little detail that we should clarify briefly is that while Angela Merkel is the chancellor of Germany, she is at the same time the head of the CDU as a political party. She was until recently. She was until she resigned recently. At the same time, she was also the head of the CDU-CSU political faction within the legislative branch. Well, technically, the head of the faction, the, the, the parliamentary whip, if you will, was a different guy. Volker Kauder, he has now been replaced um, in the wake of Merkel's own growing unpopularity. He's been replaced by another guy called Ralf Brinkhaus. But uh, Volker Kauder especially was closely aligned with Angela Merkel, who was her ally, basically uh, always making sure she got a majority of parliamentary votes for her legislative projects. Okay. Um, and uh, another important piece of background is that um, the refugee crisis didn't just destabilize the CDU and Merkel's standing as chancellor, but partly as a result of Merkel's shift to the left during her chancellorship, um, the disruption really reaches across the whole political system. Mm -hmm. So we're going to, in later podcasts, we're going to talk about some of the other political parties, but you have major political parties that are losing huge shares uh, of the popular vote and real destabilization in the political system. And then in, 20, in late 2017, you have a federal election and somewhat stunningly to many Germans, this very far right um, political party gets on the order of 13%. Almost of 13%, vote. yeah. Um, so a lot of people are very concerned about the rise yeah. of this party and they're very concerned about how the CDU can correct, somehow correct um, for the backlash against the refugee crisis. As Georg pointed out, Merkel recently stepped down as the head of the CDU party, um, but she remains as chancellor. Strategically, why did she step down as head? I think because the pressure was intense uh, from her own party. Look, the politics that you've crafted in our name doesn't win majorities anymore. We need we need uh, like a readjustment. We need to discuss our politics. We want something different, basically meaning something more right-wing. And she felt the pressure was growing too much, and also she announced that she's not going to run for a chancellor again. Uh, and I think she saw it as a way to release pressure in her own party and also to groom a successor who will replace her uh, in uh, 2021. Because how the German political system works, we don't 
elect the chancellor directly the way you elect your president, but we elect parties and the head of the strongest party usually gets to form a government and usually becomes a chancellor. Uh, at least this is how it has always been in German uh, history or the history of the Federal Republic. Another piece of, I think, important context to compare the two systems and, and get an understanding of the dynamics is there are no term limits for the chancellor. So in the history of the German Republic, I believe you have uh, three chancellors who've ever been elected to four terms. And like U.S. presidential terms, the, the term is four years. Adenauer was elected four times. Four times, was he? Three or four times. Yeah. Right. Um, we can fact check that, <laughs> put it in the program notes. Uh, but Cole was definitely elected four times and Correct. served essentially served out his 16 years. Mm -hmm. So Merkel has just been elected to a fourth term. A fifth term would be unprecedented. No uh, chancellor has That's been elected right. to a fifth term. Um, so she steps down as the party head. And something uh, very unprecedented happens within the CDU, which is three people raise their hands and say, I am running to replace Merkel as the head of the CDU, which I think has never happened before or maybe happened once before. Yeah, and it's an interesting group of people. Uh, one is, well, there are three candidates basically who stepped forward. One is AKK, who was previously the prime minister of one of the states, um, Saarland, a very small place perched somewhere uh, next to France. But she is the hand-picked successor to Merkel, essentially. Right. That's right. It, by any broad analysis, uh, Merkel brought her from Saarland, put her in Berlin as the general secretary of the CDU, mm -hmm. um, which essentially is a, is a way of positioning her to be her successor. Exactly. And then there's this relatively young guy, <clears throat> I think he's 38 or 39 years old, not even 40, his name is Jens Spahn, <clears throat> who's an outspoken Merkel critic who basically built his profile on criticizing Merkel's refugee policy and also her social policy, and who was so popular among the CDU members that Merkel was forced to include him into her cabinet, uh, and he is now the health minister. And then you have uh, a real outsider who yeah. used to be an insider. Friedrich Merz, and he comes, like, he steps back into the political arena like a jack-in-the-box. Nobody saw it coming. He was the German, like, the German boss of BlackRock, uh, the large, like, the, the, I think the world's largest investment company. Uh, and he was previously, like, a decade ago, a very important person in the city. Ooh, he was also, I think, he had a position, I think he was the parliamentary whip um, but Merkel, as she's done with a lot of her um, competitors or rivals in her own party, she has forced them out. And he has not been a voice in German politics really uh, for at least a decade. He has a much more conservative profile. He's a lawyer. He's got this um, law and order appeal. Uh, he's got a more, as you would expect from a BlackRock executive, he's got a more neoliberal stance and economic policy. And not, it's not as socially democratic as Merkel is. So he suddenly steps back into the realm. And the rank and file of the CDU are electrified. It's hard to draw a parallel, but I'm thinking, just grabbing off the top of my head, it's a little bit as if 
Bob Dole would suddenly <laughs> pop back up and say and take want to take over the reins of the Republican Party. Someone who hasn't been relevant for at least a decade, um, and someone who justifiably uh, bears a little bit of a grudge against Merkel, and not just for policy reasons. That's right. So these three candidates engage in this kind of uh, barnstorming town hall tour of Germany, which, um, odd as it may sound, is a part of a, a sort of democratic renewal of the CDU and part of this uh, renewal that needs to happen as a response to um, some of the backlash against the refugee crisis. Um, what are these regional conferences, as they're called. And how many were there, and, and sort of, how did they work? It was, I think that took, uh, took place in December, was it? And they had eight regional conferences, and it's basically a mini convention of sorts. You don't have, it's, well, it's open to the press and everything, but the people who go there are delegates of the party. And they have... I guess you could compare it to a town hall format in, in any American campaign. Like ordinary members of the party go there, the three candidates are on the stage, uh, the delegates can ask questions, can make comments, can say like, look, this is what we think is important, this is what has not been addressed, this should be a priority. So basically they have a policy discussion about everything. And the three candidates on the stage present their views and make their arguments, and in the end... You had uh, a, well, a conference of delegates where I think 1,001 delegates were and uh, they gave their votes and in the end elected AKK as the new party head. So there's this barnstorming tour of these eight regional conferences which are a little bit like a cross between a convention and a town hall. Party members go. Is it party members or delegates that go to the... the uh well, we have to factor that as well. It was delegates in the like the last convention where, where yeah. the Parteitag, where the, who in the end elected her. I think in the regional conferences, it was ordinary party members, not delegates. Okay, so they they, they go around the tour and they they establish their platforms. They they start to establish distinctions between themselves. And I have to say, as an American, I, f I found the process to be not only um, democratic but also substantive. They really try to um, state their case. They gather in Hamburg for this convention uh, and to elect, they have 1,001 delegates, to elect the new head of the party and AKK wins by a hair. Um, 17 votes. By 17 votes. Uh, in your opinion, Georg, why does she win? Because she's not necessarily favored even though She's the hand-picked successor of Merkel, um, which works to her advantage in some ways, but also works to her disadvantage because there's so much mm -hmm. criticism mm -hmm. of Merkel's <clears throat> policies. Well, I think for once it shows that despite all the criticism, Merkel is still very much in control of her party. And she has shown that she's capable of organizing a majority for her candidate. And also... I think it's fair to say that probably it's because AKK gave a better speech. That's one of the most interesting aspects of this to me, is the political event was, to me, much more exciting than a convention in the U.S., which is like a lot of pro forma, somewhat boring speeches, unless maybe you're talking about Obama or Bill Clinton uh -huh. giving a speech. 
Um, and really, the deciding factor is that AKK, though she is not uh, known as a great orator, gives a much more effective speech than Meretz. Spahn is essentially out of the running and knows it. He gives a very serviceable speech. Meretz gives a somewhat boring, fumbling, uh, uncomfortable speech. I think, yeah, uncomfortable is the word. He didn't feel comfortable. He was a little nervous. He stuck very much to his manuscript. So And uh, AKK was... I think it wasn't great oratory either, but she was more personal, she was more emotional. When I watched the speech, I have to say, she used a sort of uh, a rhetorical device, which is a repeti repetition, where she talked about the party's courage to do this, the courage to do this, mm -hmm. the courage to do mm -hmm. all these bold new things, to renew itself and also to reconnect to its roots. When we have this courage, we'll live in an international world that abides by rules. When we have this courage, we'll live in a strong Europe that perfects Schengen so that it's inwardly open and outwardly secure. When we have this courage, we'll live in a Europe that finally makes the Euro crisis-proof. We'll live in a Europe that, with a European Security Council and a European army, doesn't just frame its joint security but implements them. Then we'll have the courage to write this into our platform and together with Manfred Weber win this European election. That is our challenge. So she was very good at creating a theme uh, and sticking with it. Ultimately, it's quite effective. And she ends up winning. And so AKK is now the head of the party And one of the things that she has to do is renew the party, uh, reinforce the party's standing, but she also has to distinguish herself from Merkel for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being that her critics uh, sort of paint her with the label of Mini Merkel. Mini Merkel. So um, how does she go about sort of uh, drawing a little bit more of a distinction between herself and Merkel to escape this label? Well, I think really the, the main point of difference is their respective migration policies or their stance on migration. And this is also what, if you ask me, what the purposes of these Werkstattgespräche, the workshops on migration policy, She basically wants to give the party a valve to voice their grievances of how it, I don't know, hurt, like how this progressive immigration policy, like this lenient opening of the doors, if you will, um, like hurt their identity as like conservative right-wingers. So as one of her, her first major acts as uh, the new head of the party, uh, AKK essentially organizes a group therapy session where the CDU, <laughs> nicely put, the CDU can talk about the refugee crisis, come to terms, reconcile, and um, maybe paint a slightly new picture about what their attitude and policy will be going forward. Um, so, who who comes to this workshop? Uh, well, I think in the first workshop they had on stage. A number of experts on migration um, and uh, the audience I think were also party members mm -hmm. 
uh, and they're having discussions about what they want changed, what their experiences, what, what the experiences of the German migration policy and integration policy of the last couple of years were, what they want to do different, what they want to do better in their perception. So it's a day and a half workshop. Um, there are a few formats. People give speeches. People go up and ask questions. There's a roundtable discussion. One important detail, who is conspicuously absent from the refugee crisis workshops? Well, Merkel is, of course, not there. Merkel doesn't have to be there. Um, she's, so, she's not part of it anymore, right? Right. So she's not part of the discussion. So Merkel is really saying, okay, AKK, you do what you need to do uh, to bring the party back together. Because actually in this election of the party head, which essentially came down to Merz and AKK, you really start to see two camps within the CDU, one a little bit more right-leaning and one a little more centrist. So what, what are the outcomes of this workshop conversation? Well, um, briefly put, a much less lenient immigration policy. Okay. What they want to do is they want to push out people whose uh, applications for asylum have been rejected. They want to make repatriation faster and quicker and more effective. If one of these repatriated immigrants somehow makes it back to Germany, which happens, uh, they want to cut them off from social benefits. Um, they want to curtail their rights of appeal. So if your application for asylum has been rejected, there's, of course, there's a court process. You can appeal against that. They want to briefen that process. So, the, I mean, the German outrage as such in response to the refugee crisis, there are some parallels to American response to immigration from Mexico, which is this idea that they're taking our jobs and they're uh, sucking our social welfare system dry. They're sucking up taxpayer money. Especially the latter. I don't think it's so much about the jobs at the moment in Germany because we have full employment and there's like ample, like there's a need for qualified labor. Problem probably is that some of the immigrants you have to qualify before so they're fit for the German labor market, especially in terms of professional skills and the German language. Um, but I think the conversation is more about taxpayer money and crime. So the four uh, main, uh, four or five main outcomes are they want faster processing for the the immigrants that are coming in because that has been a huge problem there's a huge backlog so there are a bunch of refugees that don't have a status a lot of them have this sort of they're they're living in this limbo and they have no real way to move forward in the society because their applications for asylum simply haven't been processed because the system is so backed up um, they want to curtail the rights to appeal a denied application for asylum that's another problem if a refugee's application for asylum is denied, they can appeal it and then they start the whole process over and they have yet another status which is abgelehnte Azulbewerber, which is a delayed approval. Um, they want a faster process of sending uh, refugees whose applications have been denied either back to their country of origin or back to the first country that they landed in Europe. Um, And then, as Garrick pointed out, they want to deny social benefits for any refugee who is denied, leaves Germany, and then comes back to reapply again. 
There are some interesting themes that emerge in uh, the workshops, and then there's been some interesting analysis uh, elsewhere about um, what the conversation really is about. Uh, one of the, the, the terms uh, that I think uh, AKK mentions as she's introducing the workshops is they want to achieve the right balance of humanity and a hard line. What is she doing there? Well, she's trying to reconcile two strands that are dominant in the CDU. One is the conservative, rule-based, uh, rule of law, law and order strand. One is the Christian, because remember, it's called the Christian Democratic Union, right? So often when um, members of the CDU talk about their policies and they talk about their response to the refugee crisis, you will hear people say, this is about the C in CDU. And the C in CDU is, of course, that they are the Christian Democratic Party, and the C represents Christian values, which was one of the bases for them letting in the refugees. Help the poor, help the downtrodden, open your heart, be generous, help thy neighbor. So, and now what AKK is doing is um, opening up the possibility of a slightly harder line. Um, in a recent interview, uh, she, when asked if she could foresee closing the borders in the future if confronted by some kind of hard-to-control, renewed wave of refugees, she very tactfully said, as a last resort, it would be absolutely conceivable to close the borders, which I think is an important symbolic acknowledgement. But that is exactly it. It's symbolic. It's rhetoric. Because in the end, one, if not the major reason why in 2015, when it was clear that more and more, hundreds of thousands more refugees were coming to Germany, why the borders were not closed is this. If you close the border, you would have to do that with violence, right? You need like federal police at the border, they will use rubber bullets, they will use clubs, they have, will have shears, they will have helmets, they will maybe use tear gas to drive back also women and children. You would have wild camps on the Austrian side of the border, you would have refugees trying to cross like through forests or the green borders or the mountains. And these are pictures that are very hard to bear also for political or historical reasons for the German public. And this is one of the reasons why it was not done in 2015. So if AKK now says, okay, we will do that if need be, um, she doesn't resolve the problem uh, of these pictures that would then come out uh, that would be produced by such a decision and that would be hard to bear for any political decision maker who bears responsibility for this. You decide on something that can serve as a symbol, something that you can point to, say like, look, this is, I said, yes, I will close the border, something that Merkel has never done, so that means I am different than Merkel in this respect. It's a little bit like what we call uh, throwing red meat to the base, giving the base something that they can hold on to that makes them feel like this is the party that they know and love and they can feel that they're a part. But for the time being, it's also symbolic because AKK is the head of the party. She's not head of the executive. That is still Merkel. So if we have another large flow of migrants coming in like an unregulated way via the Balkans, for example. It would still be up to Merkel to decide how to deal with the situation 
And AKK, as the party had, she can talk a lot, but she doesn't have the power to implement political decisions on a nationwide scale. One of the things that I want to return to is uh, through this uh, Zimbolpolitik or politics of symbolism, AKK is trying to draw a clear, by shifting the party a little bit to the right, even if symbolically, she's trying to draw a clear distinction between the CDU and the SPD, which is the Social Democratic Party. Um, Why do you think that is important? And especially relative to the way you said earlier that Merkel had shifted the CDU to the left, into the territory of the Social Democratic Party. Well, because of exactly that, a lot of people fear that under Merkel, essentially, the CDU has become social democrat on a lot of fears, not only migration policy, but especially um, social benefits, health policy, um, and so on and so on. Um, and the feeling is that both the SPD needs a clearer profile as a left-leaning party and the CDU needs a clearer profile as a right-leaning party so you can have a clear distinction between the two camps. So to sum up, AKK rises to become the head of the CDU and in an effort to sort of heal and reconcile um, in response to the controversy of the refugee crisis that many people associate with Angela Merkel, she organizes these workshops and the what emerges from the workshops is at least symbolically a harder, more conservative line in response to the refugee crisis. Georg, I feel like we've thoroughly kicked around the political foosball today. (laughs) Um, In about two weeks, we're going to organize another podcast and we're going to introduce more of the players and more of the teams. We're going to talk a little bit more about what color jerseys they wear, because that's a very important part of talking about um, German politics. Sometimes when Germans talk about the national government, they speak simply in terms of the colors um, associated with the parties that are in a coalition. We're going to work on improving our audio quality and our technical production, uh, but we're very excited to be kicking off this discussion. Um, And if you somehow happen to be listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends. Please like us on whatever podcast platform we're using. Georg, any closing thoughts? Well, I think it was a lot of fun. This is an experiment, really. This is the first time we do this. This is the first take. Uh, So I'm excited what the outcome is. I really enjoyed the discussion with you, as always. Uh, And I'm looking forward to the next round. (laughs) 